Fee-fa-o. Um, let's just play hockey instead. This week, 102 Ave will be closed to cars, at least for a period of about a year, maybe. And council, after much debate about funding the police differently, funds police exactly the same way. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 183. That voice you hear beside me is Mac Mail, who is back from his long, long vacation of, of one week. Oh, yes. Extremely long vacation. Off in the mountains. It was very nice. Did you get a lot of rest and relaxation while I was suffering through the council meetings in your stead? Yes, I had to just experience the tweets, which was painful in a different way, I'll say. <laughs> rude. Also rude is the rapid fire segment. Edmonton will celebrate Waste Collector Appreciation Day on June 17th to recognize all the hardworking podcast apps that are currently subscribed to the city of Edmonton's new podcast about zoning. In a bizarre, overproduced, reality show-like presentation, FIFA announced that for the 2026 World Cup, the tribe has spoken. Edmonton's a no-money, all-whammies, weakest link, getting sent home with no ring. Said FIFA president Gianni Infantino, Edmonton now sashay away. Jason Kenney has announced that the final COVID restriction in Alberta, mandatory self-isolation, is now a thing of the past. And so we at Speaking Municipally are <coughs> very, very <coughs> excited to announce <coughs> our newest <coughs> live episode recording. <coughs> No masks allowed. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. And this episode is brought to you by Alberta Blue Cross. Life as a business owner can be hectic, to say the least, and Alberta Blue Cross understands that. They offer flexible health, dental, life, and disability coverage for your employees. And even better, you can let your staff enroll and manage their coverage at any time and on any device. And that makes life easier for them and for you. You've got this when it comes to group coverage for your small business, and Alberta Blue Cross has got your back. To learn more and explore your options, head to ab.bluecross.ca. Well, Mac, we did it. I don't push for many things at council these days because I've become jaded and cynical, but I thought 102 Ave was something that was worth putting my weight into, and so I've been pushing for this the past couple of weeks, uh, putting together videos contacting counselors. And I'm going to be honest, I thought we had lost this vote. So I was very surprised this week when we won. Council voted seven to six in favor of not allowing cars on 102 Avenue from 99th Street to 103th Street. Right. This has been closed for more than four years now due to the Valley Line LRT construction. And the idea came up late last year, Paths for People suggested, why don't we just keep it closed and make this a pedestrian corridor? And I was glad to see some of your advocacy efforts, Troy, with a pretty well done video with some city councillors in it and uh, encouraging people to contact their councillors. And it seems like that may have made a difference because it was a close vote and you were following along at council when they talked about this, but we didn't know how the vote was going to land until basically the last possible moment, right? Yeah. So going into the debate, we knew it was 5-5. Five, five. Uh, there were five people that were absolutely going to vote in favor and five that were absolutely going to vote against. But we had three, Amarjeet Sohi, Karen Tang, and Joanne Wright, who could have swung either way. We tried to pin them down. I had heard from a lot of constituents who had sent them emails that 
they'd either gotten non-committal or undecided responses. So going into it, it was anyone's ball game. And of course, you know, we have history behind us and what they'd said. So my prediction was that we were actually going to lose this vote 7-6 or even more probably 8-5. I expected Wright to come over to the yes side and I expected Karen Tang and Amarjeet Sohi to vote no. I was right on most of that, except Amarjeet Sohi, Mr. Mayor, he instead voted yes and was the cincher, the deciding vote on this motion. And then posted a tweet thread about it as if he'd been a longtime proponent. Yeah. Which I don't think is true, right? I mean, maybe he had been, but it would have been a very private proponent of the idea. No? You know, this is one of the problems that I've had with Amarjeet Sohi's leadership. When you talk to Mr. Sohi personally, he tends to come down on the right side of issues. But it is very, very hard to track down how he's going to vote, what he's going to support, whose interests are going to push him over the edge. And I think there's no better example than this, because it wasn't just me who wasn't sure how Amarjeet Sohi was going to vote. I had spoken with counselors, with staff. They had guesses about how Sohi might vote, but no one knew for sure. And I think that level of miscoordination, I would say, is problematic on city council. This nonpartisan organization where you don't have teams to vote up and down on one side of the aisle or the other, you really do need to communicate with your colleagues and work together to get votes passed. And I do feel like that's something that this council is pretty starkly lacking, that closed doors working the hallway coordination. Yeah, I feel like no one has figured out in this term that in order to get things passed, you need the support of six other people. So you should be, you know, walking the halls, whether they're real or virtual, trying to drum up that support. And there are strategies, I suppose, for why the mayor may not have wanted to, you know, release his position early. Maybe he just didn't feel that strongly about it and wanted to make sure he came down on the right side. Maybe he likes being the tiebreaker, but I don't think those things are true. I think he really does actually want to be a collaborative person to build a coalition that can move things forward. So it is very curious that he didn't seem to do that in this case. The tweet thread is a bit of a counter argument to this, but it's possible he just decided in the meeting. Counselors did put together some pretty strong arguments to do this. And then some other counselors did weak arguments to not do this. But Joanne Wright, I think, is a great example of this. She went into the meeting and she said as much, I was planning on voting no, but I've heard the comments of my colleagues and I'm convinced and I think we should we should try this. And she voted yes. So, you know, that can happen in debate. And I'm not saying counselors should go in with their mind made up. But so he's follow up Twitter thread where he extolled how this is something that he's really thought about and really supports. It didn't quite jive with his lack of surety before the vote. Right. And I love that about Councillor Wright, because she did tell us that one of the things that was really important to her, and perhaps even one of the reasons she decided to run for council was about that importance of public engagement and engaging with the citizens and the constituents in her ward. So to see her make a decision and to acknowledge that hearing from people brought her to a more informed place and she made that decision is encouraging, I would say, and consistent with what she's told us in the past. I can't say that about Councillor Tang, who was in a photo <laughs> with two other councillors and Stephen Rates from Paths for People kicking down a barrier along 102 Ave as if she was a huge supporter of this. She voted no, right? So what's the deal with that? Couldn't tell you, but I can tell you that that tweeted photo did not go unnoticed. You know, 
I'm not going to say that a counselor should say, hey, no, you can't be in my photo op. (laughs) If a counselor loses the vote and says, well, shucks, I lost. Let's move forward and let's really put our all behind this movement. I say great. Uh, And if that is the perspective that Counselor Tang had after that vote, that's fine. I'm glad that she's behind it now. Sure. She did not give as full-throated a support of this as, for example, Tim Cartmel, who also voted no. But I thought Tim Cartmel was really interesting to note because when he started his comments, I was in some private DMs and I'm like, dear God, did we actually get Tim Cartmel on side? <laughs> because he spent the first two minutes of his time talking about how great an idea it is, how perfect the location is, how slam dunk emotion this is. And then he said the word but. He says that a lot, actually, Troy. He does. Uh, The crux of his opposition was that there was no rush to do this right now. We could go through a process for this. We could evaluate the risks and the costs and see if there's any other locations. And he's going to support the motion then. He thinks this is a good idea, but he thought there was a process we should go through to it. I can appreciate those comments. He's wrong. Um, And there was significant loss by not doing it now, by reopening this road to cars initially before trying to close it. Right. That was a huge risk. Uh, So, you know, missed the mark on that. But broadly, he was pretty supportive of this. Uh, I would say probably more a full-throated support than Karen Tang made in her comments. Councillor Tang, in her comments after the fact, also talked about this follow-up motion that she did support from Councillor Salvador, which was to explore other pedestrianization and contiguous network opportunities. I don't know exactly what that means, but I seem to uh, remember hearing and reading that one of the points of opposition that the, the folks on the losing side of this motion had was that we didn't need yet another place to program. Did that come up in the discussion at all? Anybody stand out on that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Sarah Hamilton said stuff to that effect, uh, and Aaron Rutherford also highlighted comments to that effect. Fundamentally, they do miss the point that even unprogrammed, a people space that you can walk through is better without cars. But also, they are missing the fundamental point of the snowballing effect. The argument has been made that, you know, if we can't fill Churchill Square, how will we fill this greater area? What they're missing is that induced demand, what we talk about with vehicles on the Henday, exists for pedestrian and cyclist infrastructure as well. When you make more space, more people will come to fill it. When you have fewer islands of activity in the downtown and instead have created corridors where activity can flow from location to location, That's where you get tourists that leave their car at the hotel and just wander through your space. That's where you get people who say, it's Saturday night. I'm just going to go downtown. Where downtown? Not Rogers, not 104th Street. I'm just going to go downtown. And that's the gold standard for city building. And that's what hopefully we can achieve with something like this. No doubt. I've already seen lots of people using it, even though inexplicably they still have barriers up blocking the bike lane. Many a cyclist has dutifully just cycled around it and has started to use that lane already. So I think that's a really good point. I think also the challenge I have with that argument is just like it makes it so clear that the default position is spaces are for cars. 
Like heaven forbid we build a space just for people without having to think about, you know, some sort of a vibrancy fund to fill it with picnic tables or something. Like why can't we just default to having space for people? It really speaks to the car mentality, I think, of this city and of this council, or at least half of them. The other main argument that seemed to be uh, in opposition to this was about the businesses, right? Anything new there? Nah, there was still this inexplicable specter of business opposes that even though the businesses on this street are a couple parkades and the YMCA, all of which have access from other roads and all which you astutely noticed have for the past four years and six months done just fine without this road. I thought it was very interesting that Councillor Knack tweeted ostensibly in the Councillor Knack way of let's heal divisions, let's show how we're all together, that the majority of the opposition he heard, came from building owners, and the majority of support came from residents and workers in the downtown. And now he seemed to think that this could be portrayed as a sort of unifying message, how we're all believing in the same thing and we just have to use different ways to get there. I, of course, heard it in likely the same way you heard it, where downtown is a blight of property speculation by rich real estate investors at the expense of the built form of the public realm. Yeah, I totally doubled down on the division in response to his tweet because I don't think it's true at all what he and several other councillors seem to indicate, which is that we all want the same things. Councillor Nack said, these property owners just want to have tenants that will pay rent. And this is a way to help attract people to those areas so they can support those businesses. And to that, I say, BS, Councillor Nack. There are so many empty spaces, so many vacancies many of which, a significant portion of which predate the pandemic, they're still empty today. I do not think those landlords care about having a tenant who pays rent. Otherwise, they would have filled them up a long time ago. So it was a really difficult tweet for me to see from Councillor Neck, because I think he's trying to, as you say, heal divisions when really I think there's some some value here in pressing on that division a little bit more to get to the truth of the matter, which is that we don't all want the same things and we should be examining why and where there is common ground, because it's not that we all want to see this vibrant space. I don't think that's true. One of the things that Councillor Paquette brought up in his remarks, which I thought was a very well put together five minutes, oftentimes when Councillor Paquette speaks, he takes the full five minutes and I wish it was 30 or 40 (laughs) seconds long instead. This time it was a full good five minutes. And one of the cities he brought up was Lithuania in Slovenia. I have a free pass for pronouncing that wrong because I pronounce English words wrong all the time on this podcast. (laughs) That is true. He brought up that they had closed down a significant portion of their downtown to vehicle traffic with only a 40% mandate from the public. Most people opposed it. And then fast forward a decade, the concept of adding vehicles back faced 96% opposition. When you look at cities, the way that they're built and the way that cars intrude upon the cities is so pervasive and so universal that most people can't imagine what it could be without cars. They imagine that a street without cars is like the street in front of your house when no one's driving by. But when you fully remove traffic, you open up so many more possibilities. And in Edmonton, if people haven't gone outside of North America, it's very possible they have never experienced a city or an urban area like that. They simply cannot imagine how great this place could be. And I think that by the end of this one-year pilot, 
we're going to have a lot of Edmontonians on side with it. I really hope so. It's a great point. There's plenty of cities that have less space than us that still somehow manage to have businesses that get deliveries and all the other services that you need to make those things work. It's not a new idea. Other cities have done this. I wanted to point out, Troy, it's not even a new idea in Edmonton. So I found this downtown design improvement manual from 1988. Here we are, 34 years later, and we're finally doing what this manual suggested, which is a goal for 102 and 103 avenues. It said, in addition to being major arterials, the two avenues should be upgraded to major pedestrian routes from the proposed neighborhoods in the CP lands and the warehouse district to the downtown core and the civic center. 34 years ago, planners were thinking about turning this into a pedestrian corridor. And we finally did it. Good for us. Better late than never. Uh, before we move on to this item, which we really should move off of, we should recap exactly what happened. Council approved a motion to essentially not open the vehicle lane up to traffic because right now, uh, as Mac mentioned, there are barriers on there and that is because the city does not currently control this area. It is under the authority of TransEd as they're building the LRT. Once they finish the Valley Line, they will hand that back over to the city, at which point, you know, TransEd will have opened the roadway as per the contract. This motion passes a little bylaw to say, nah, 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 we're going to keep that road closed until administration can draft a bylaw to actually close the road for a one-year pilot. So from this point in time, we may actually get more than one year of closure because I imagine the one-year pilot start date will be on passage of that bylaw. Of course, assuming that that bylaw passes at public hearing, we could still lose all of this if people vote against the bylaw later on. We shared some good news on last week's episode about some Chinatown infrastructure projects, and we got an update on that this week as well. Yeah, executive committee talked about this and has essentially asked administration to bring forward a package for their consideration in the upcoming four-year budget for the infrastructure projects in Chinatown that, as we talked about last week, were already identified in the Chinatown strategy. When city council approved this strategy in 2018, they did so without any funding for these capital projects. And as we heard, a couple of things have happened since then, but the majority of them have not. There's still a chance they may not happen, although I'm willing to bet, Troy, that when this does come up in the fall as part of the budget, this council is going to be quite keen on approving some funding for those infrastructure projects in Chinatown. Yeah, for sure. I think any other year, some of these get deferred as nice-to-haves or when we have budget. Uh, I think this year, they're all passing. If you had asked me a couple of weeks ago, I would have said one thing that's sure not to pass with this council is a new police funding formula. Well, Mac, I am less sure about that now. Council ended up discussing at this point a couple of weeks ago the police funding formula. And what was decided was essentially we're going to give the police every cent that they currently get from all city sources. So that's a total of $407 million. So he's going to guarantee them that money next year. And they passed a motion to pursue drafting, guess what, Mac? A funding formula for the police. We thought the outcome was going to be different, right? Because we went into this council meeting having a recommendation from committee. This was a motion that Councilor Rutherford had put forward for a baseline budget of $385 million a year. So not including the traffic safety and automated enforcement reserve money, that $22 million that brings you up to 407 And also 
that the police would use the same budgeting process as all the other civic agencies and departments, which is that they would bring packages forward for consideration and at budget time, council would vote on and approve those. So it was quite a significant change when I saw what happened. And this was a 12 to 1 vote. Even Councillor Rutherford ended up going along with this plan. The only person to dissent, of course, was Councillor Michael Jans. There's merits to both sides of this argument, but I think I'll fundamentally present what I heard from councillors, and especially councillors like Councillor Rutherford, who, you'll recall, made the motion to set the number at 385. Broadly, what councillors had said was they had always intended to freeze the police budget. No one on council had intended to cut the police budget. So $470 million is the amount that the police were going to get. They had all said, we're basically talking about this number. The problem is, of course, that the province of Alberta has cut this police budget because they've cut photo radar. The city is making less money from photo radar. Uh, The amount of deficit we're not quite sure yet, but expect it to be in 10, 15 million dollars that we no longer accumulate via photo radar. And 22 and a half million of the police funding came from the photo radar fund. So the unfortunate side effect of councillors saying, oh, you know, numbers are numbers. We're debating over the same thing. Let's just set it at 407 to move on, is that this motion now carries water for the UCP. Before it would be council is committing to what we had committed to last year. And if Jason Kenney's cutting your budget, you really got to go talk to Jason Kenney about that. Now it's council is guaranteeing you get the same amount. And if Jason Kenney cuts the budget, well, oh boy, we're going to raise property taxes to make up for it. That does not seem like the political power position that councillors in Edmonton, the orange dot, really need to be taking in this provincial environment. I think, as we pointed out before, this is a bit of a quirk of the previous funding formula, right? And that that $22 million from the Traffic Safety Reserve came into the next year's base budget. So we kind of, for a year, treated it as something from the province. But the following year, it was baked into the base budget. You know, I can kind of see the argument that what council has done here is not that dissimilar from what was happening before uh, with the four-year funding formula that we had. You said one thing, Troy, that I just wanted to go back to, which is that none of these councillors said they intended to cut the budget, or maybe they always intended to freeze it. And that's not exactly true. Because of course, remember during the campaign, we did a project called the People's Agenda. And we asked all of these candidates when they were running for council, what they would do. Council Rice and Cartmel said they would continue to increase the police budget. So they're following along here. Council Rutherford, Councillor Stevenson and Councillor Jans indicated that they would decrease the police budget somewhat. And Mayor Sohi, Councillor Tang, Salvador, and Wright all indicated that they would at least freeze it until it's in line with other comparable cities, which in effect is probably a cut to some degree. So it struck me that almost all of council has gone in a different direction on this file from what they said they would do when they were running to be elected back in the fall. So as little as I want to carry water for councillors breaking campaign promises, when council starts They have a year to get acclimated before they're dealing with a four-year budget. And now if you really want to make big budgetary changes, if you want to set the course for the directions of big city organizations like the Edmonton Police, the four-year budget cycle is really the place to do that, which allows more planning and expectation setting. So I could certainly hear the argument that in this specific motion, counselors are best served by simply freezing the police funding, committing to no more increases. But if council had 
done the 385 here, well, all the columnists and the police commissions would be talking about the $22 million cut. Council will have already cut the police budget without having ever cut the police budget. And they've lost all that political capital to do what they want to do. I think this council probably only gets one big budgetary cut before they start losing political support. If I was being a tactful counselor, maybe I'd want to do that at the four-year budget cycle mark where it would have the most impact. And maybe I wouldn't want to burn my political capital before that. Well, then surely the vote for how to fund them in the future wouldn't have gone 11 to 2 in favor of a revised funding formula, which will exist completely separately from that four-year budget cycle. I mean, that amount will be part of the operating budget, I suppose, but it's not going to be debated on and voted in, on in the same way. This will be something that is determined separately. Councillor Jans and Councillor Knack were the only two who voted against going with this revised funding formula. And of course, at this point, it is just for administration to develop this thing. It will come back for approval at some point, and they could change their minds there. They could do something different there, I suppose. It does seem like they've really acquiesced to the demands of the police throughout this entire discussion. And at the few opportunities where we have seen councillors put their neck out there and say, we need to do things differently, such as Rutherford suggesting the 385, they haven't stuck with that. They've always gone back to, oh my goodness, we can't be seen to be cutting the police budget. You know, it's that machine that the police has has been very, very effective through this debate. If I was to speculate optimistically on what this could mean, though, is the motion from council isn't to say, let's do a police funding formula. The motion is to have administration bring back a proposal for what a funding formula could look like that doesn't guarantee raises and that includes certain metrics that council wants to see. If I was in council's chair, Mac, uh, there's no secret that uh, I do not support police budget increases or even funding formulas. I would have been on the yes side of this motion. And that's simply because it's really hard to debate something that doesn't exist. If you're trying to propose, hey, I want service packages from the police, and that's how we're going to better manage our budget. And then you have 12 counselors who are saying, well, no, I want a funding formula because a funding formula can guarantee decreases when the police performance drops. Or another counselor saying, I want a funding formula because our police service needs to be funded with guaranteed increases. And you have another counselor that says, I support funding formulas because funding formulas provide stability that service packages don't provide. Well, then you've noticed that those other three counselors have all imagined a different thing that a funding formula can be and are using that to vote down your service package plan. It is much easier to debate the merits of a particular plan if you have another particular plan to compare it to. So until we actually develop what a funding formula could look like in this environment, I think it's really hard to debate cutting the police budget because I think that motion will always lose because the grass will always be greener. Yeah, that's a really fair point. We've talked before about the curiosity of some councillors voting against even just getting more information on a particular topic. And that's similar to what you're arguing for here. So I can understand that. We will get this plan for a revised funding formula at some point. So this all happened a couple of days after this vote happened. The city of Edmonton published its public safety plan. So this was June 9th in response to the request from Justice Minister Tyler Shandro pretty much said 
everything we've already talked about in recent weeks, everything we knew that it was going to say. And it did also include several asks directed at the provincial government, you know, funding for emergency shelter spaces, more funding for supportive housing, more funding for police, actually, removing the, the cap on the cost of a police officer that the province supports. So, you know, city said, we're doing lots of stuff around safety. We could do more if we had some help from you, Mr. Province, help us do that. Those two things in combination that week probably would have left council and the mayor, I would think, feeling pretty good about where things were at. Like maybe they're finally starting to get to a bit of a resolution on this ongoing discussion about how to fund the police and if we're doing enough on safety. And then CBC published a story where we learned that just three days before those two men were fatally beaten in Chinatown, the man who's accused of killing them was dropped off in Edmonton by RCMP officers. And then even though bail conditions prohibited him from being in Edmonton unsupervised, Edmonton police officers spoke to him and did not detain him. Since that story was published, both the province, the RCMP, and even the EPS today have disputed the facts of that story. What happened when and who talked to whom, with just today the EPS saying, no, we didn't actually speak directly to Bone. We uh, spoke to the RCMP about him, but we never talked to him personally, in contradiction to all of the reporting up until that point. We've also heard from legal experts, lawyers, criminologists at universities around the province that, yes, the police service, the Edmonton Police Service, did have grounds to arrest him. The police service said, no, we didn't. I don't know that we've really quite got to the true finality of the situation yet, who was right and who was wrong. One of the ways you might do that, one of the ways you might get to that place is by doing some sort of a review or an investigation. And Mayor Amarjeet Sohi called for this immediately after this story broke. He called for a comprehensive review of the justice system in Alberta, saying that it had failed these two men. And he also called for a fulsome investigation by the Edmonton Police Commission into the role the police service played into this. And to my knowledge, both the province and the police commission have said, no, we're not going to do that. Yeah, it flies in the face of transparency in this case to not do a review. And accountability. Accountability, right? Take some accountability here. I think it's made all the more egregious because if we accept EPS on face value that, mm, you know, we didn't actually speak to Bone, but we knew of him, that's still bad, but not quite as egregious. What is truly egregious, though, is Chief Dale McPhee, who in the weeks after he learned that RCMP had dropped off this individual in Edmonton and that EPS knew about this individual. Chief Dale McPhee said nothing when he spoke to council. He said nothing when he spoke to the police commission. He said nothing to the residents of Chinatown while he was at their memorial events hugging the residents. I can only describe this as gross. It's sickening. Yeah. I mean, journalists have asked the police service what the chief knew exactly and when he knew it. And we've not got any confirmed details about that, but the timeline is such that you have to believe that he had that evidence, had those facts, and knew about them at the time that these things were happening. And it really does, in retrospect, you know, make it look like the police service used these terrible events to further their own agenda. And, and many counselors felt that way too. I think, you know, as I said, after the, the week of June 7th, June 9th, those meetings, the release of the public safety plan, probably they're feeling good about it. This story breaks and they're feeling betrayed all of a sudden. They're feeling like they've been had, like what they were told is not actually what was true. 
that's a pretty difficult position to be in. I don't imagine the relationship between counsel and the police is, is the, in a really great spot right now, which is why it was so inexplicable that this week the mayor said that the relationship between the council and the police commission is improving despite all of this recent friction. He said, quote, the tension is lessening. He also added, however, that there's still a lack of clarity around who is to hold police accountable when something goes wrong. I would ask Mr. Mayor to maybe check his inbox. There may be a letter from the police commission saying one of his counselors need to resign and that the mayor should be investigating. I think that's an example of perhaps some less collaborative engagement uh, between the police commission and council. I don't know, just speculating here. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I don't see where he gets that the tension is lessening. Maybe he's trying to lessen the tension by saying that, but I think it's clear the police don't fight fair. Well, I want to close with two quick items uh, that we had updates about this week. The first being private trees. We had talked about this in past episodes, how 56% of Edmonton's urban forest is actually located on private residential property. So council naturally might want to protect that. I know I personally love the amount of trees in Edmonton. That's a strong asset for me. There was an option for council's urban planning committee to pass a bylaw about this, but they opted to delay pursuing a bylaw to uh, regulate the removal of trees on private property and instead asked for more information about how the city plan's goal of planting 2 million trees by 2050 will be accomplished. Mac, I don't know much about cause and effect, but I don't know that those two are related. Yeah, we've talked about this in the past. We wondered, how are they going to plant 2 million trees? And that's 2 million public trees. That's what the city plan talks about. This is assuming there's a whole bunch of private trees also being planted as development continues to happen. This motion that they ultimately decided to do at, at uh, Urban Planning Committee to ask for this additional information now connects those two as if some of those 2 million trees by 2050 are actually private trees. So that's a bit confusing. I hope we get more detail on that when it comes back. The other reason that it was interesting this came up this week is because it was this week that the public tree bylaw took effect. And there is now rules in place to protect trees on public property, such as in parkland or along boulevards, when there's construction happening nearby. That's what this private tree bylaw would do also for private trees, trees on private property, if that goes forward when we get this information back. So Mac, I think I want to close with a quick answer to council's question. I think I can save administration some time in generating the report. Uh, how exactly are we going to achieve city plan's goal of planting 2 million trees by 2050? We won't. We will not. <laughs> Something else in the bizarre column that came out this week was the EPS campaign to inspire Edmontonians to rediscover their city with transit, which is very much some intern at the marketing department of the city of Edmonton. They're really happy about this project. And I think this project has been in the can for a while. And I think that there's been a team that's been very excited to launch this project. And by golly, Mac, did it get launched this week? <laughs> This is obviously, as you say, something that's been in the works. I have to imagine there was a conversation within administration at some point in recent weeks saying, this Rediscover ETS campaign that we've been working on, yeah, it's ready to go. But do you think, given the current climate, that we should launch that? Or should we maybe hold off? And inexplicably, someone decided, no, we're going to go ahead and launch that. As if the problem facing ETS right now is that people aren't using it to get to attractions around the city. Aside from that, fine. This is a fine program. They're encouraging you to use the bus to get to rec centers and attractions. If you do, there's some discounts and things like that, prizes, 
whatever. The whole idea here is that you can use ETS to get to places other than just going to school or the office. And, you know, in normal circumstances, I don't really have a problem with a campaign like that. But you didn't agree with me when I said that earlier. Yeah. So I don't have a particular problem with giving prizes to transit riders. I I like prizes. I like to win things. That's fun and fine. Yeah. But in the context of if I'm going to rediscover ETS and I'm going to sit next to a piss-soaked seat as I get my golden ticket to go to the Mutart Conservatory, you know, I'd just rather that we hired an extra cleaner to clean up that seat. That would be ideal for me, and that would help me rediscover transit a little bit more. Should it be either or? No. I think in a perfect world, we should be able to do this thing and also properly fund our transit system. But absent doing the first one, this second part feels a little tone deaf. It feels a little, we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. I think the obvious solution to getting people to ride transit is to make transit good. But I think the city said, eh, that's a little bit too hard. Is there something easier we can do? Yes, free tickets to the Mutart Conservatory. That's the winning idea. And I just rather they didn't. I don't have anything to add. That was great. I agree with you. <laughs> Unlike the campaign to inspire Edmontonians to rediscover their city with transit, there are some good ideas that smart people have come up with, and you can hear all about that in ATB's The Future Of podcast. It's hosted by Todd Hirsch, ATB Financial's Vice President and Chief Economist, and The Future Of podcast has launched its third season. By connecting with industry leaders to uncover what's on the horizon for the things that mean the most to you, The Future Of podcast promises to give you insights to help navigate what is often an uncertain future. Explore how our economy and communities can not only brace for change, but embrace the opportunities that it creates. You can subscribe to The Future Of on the Apple Store, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are sold. And you can, of course, connect with ATB at atb.com slash thefutureof. And that's it for this week, Mac. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.